0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Paul Offit, renowned vaccine expert and member of the FDA's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Panel. He talks about the dramatic impact of vaccine deployment in the US, bringing down cases significantly, He also talks about the MRNA science, decades in the making, and the statistical impossibility that the technology will, quote, alter your DNA. FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson checks in. Managing Editor looks at misstatements spoken about health policy spoken in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Paul Offit here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: We're speaking today with Dr. Paul Offit, Director of the Vaccine Education Center and Professor of Pediatrics, in the Division of Infectious Disease at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee on COVID-19 and of the National Institute of Health's Working Group on Vaccines.
2: Dr. Offit is a founding advisory board member of the Autism Science Foundation and the Foundation for Vaccine Research. And he's the editor of the publication, Vaccines. Dr. Offit, we really want to welcome you back to Conversations on Healthcare today.
3: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah. You know, the G7 nations meeting, uh, President Biden announced that he was donating 500 million doses of the vaccine to developing nations. But we also learned that our death total in 2021 eclipsed 2020. Uh, And yet here in the United States, I think people feel we've turned the corner. Uh, What what say you about where we stand uh, on the trajectory of of the global
3: pandemic? Well, on the global pandemic, you have 195 countries out there. There are many of whom have not given a single dose of vaccine. So I think the global pandemic is going to be with us for a while. Um, in the United States, things are certainly better uh, for three reasons. One is it's summer, and this is basically a winter virus. You Mm can see that last summer when the cases came down before the winter hit. Um, We have obviously about uh, at least close to 60% of the the adult population that's now fully vaccinated. And natural infection also protects. And we have probably looking at antibody surveillance studies, about 100 million people in this country who've already been naturally infected. So you're probably at at sort of herd immunity rates of around close to 65 to 70%. Hmm. That may May not be enough uh, you know the, the, these variants that are circulating now we're we're, we're now like moving to variant number 3 the, the first virus that came into this country was variant number 1 the, the second one that started to take over was the, the, what was called what, at one point the UK variant that's now called the Alpha variant, and now there's a third variant that's, that's coming up that's more contagious, the so-called Delta variant, which was originally isolated in India. If that's true, if these vac- viruses are more contagious, you need a higher percentage of the population to be immune, so we're not there yet. We'll see what happens over the winter, but I suspect you'll see a, a spike again next, uh, this coming winter.
2: Well, Dr. Offit, uh you know, sometimes it seems like every day is a uh, COVID day, right? And it's been here for years. And, and sometimes just the speed at which we've moved through this mm-hmm. pandemic really astonishes me. And And one of those signposts is how scarce vaccine supply was just a few short months ago. And now many places in the United States are really sitting with an excess of vaccine in their freezers and refrigerators, that may expire before they can actually give it to people. And we see uh, all sorts of incentives uh, being used to get people to come out and get the vaccine. And you've you've said that vaccine resistance, the resistance of people to get the vaccine, is what really scares you. Uh, Information is out there. Strategies are out there. Still, we have an enormous uh, chunk of people who just are saying they're not going to get the vaccine. Uh, what What do you say to people at this point about that?
3: Well, if it's it's a matter of education, we can educate. If it's a matter of access, we can provide access. If it's a matter of sort of inertia and people just need a nudge, then incentives work. What worries me is the fourth group. This is a group that is just not going to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. They believe that vaccines are are more harmful than helpful. Uh, They're cynical about the information that they hear. And so what do you do then? What do you then do then if there's a critical percentage of the population that's choosing not to vaccinate, so much so that it causes the virus to continue to spread, to mutate, to create variants? What do you do? I mean, people will say, look, it's a personal choice. Well, it's not a personal choice because it's a choice you're making for other people, people with whom you come in contact with. So what do you do then? And I think that's what, what you're seeing now in the private sector, Mm -hmm. which is mandates. Certain Mm -hmm. businesses will Mm -hmm. say, if you want to come back to work, get vaccinated.
1: Well, let's pull away some of those and just pulling on the thread of of the question, pull away some of those glaring rumors, uh, because we see there are still people who are waiting. There are, as you said, a group of individuals who said, no, I'm not getting this vaccine, whatever you say. But uh, maybe just respond to a couple of these uh, rumors that are out there. Vaccines weren't fully vetted. Uh, They were made too quickly.
3: Well they certainly were made quickly. I mean this was yeah. a, a vaccine really there was we had this virus in hand and sequenced in January of 2020. There were two large clinical trials that were performed within 11 months. I mean that's remarkable. Yeah. But but I think people have this misconception that that critical timelines were skipped or or worse that safety guidelines were ignored. That's not true. Those, those trials, those original trials of 30,000 or 40,000 people were the size of any typical pediatric or adult vaccine trial. Similarly, the the, the there was the other thing that wasn't a difference was the safety up I mean, any severe safety issue that's come up with vaccines has come up within six weeks of a vaccine. So mm-hmm. the safety follow-up was, had to be two months after the last dose. The real difference was length of follow-up for efficacy. So when we approved those, say, two mRNA vaccines in December, we could say that they were effective for a few months, but we didn't know that they were going to be, whether they were effective for a year or two years or three years, but you're not going to do a three or four year study when, when 500,000 people had just died right. that year right. to see whether it remained effective. And I'm sure it's going to be, you know, effective for probably a few years. That was really the only difference.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the mRNA, also we've heard that vaccines alter your DNA, particularly uh, those two, the Pfizer and the Moderna
3: one. Yeah, I'm not sure why people think that when their DNA is altered, it's always for the worst. I mean, why can't you develop <laughs> X-ray vision, for example, after getting a vaccine? Um, right. It's 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 not possible. So so take the it, it's understandable how people could think this, because it's really, these are our first genetic vaccines, meaning you're not being given the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. You're mm-hmm. being given the gene that codes for the spike protein. And so your body makes the spike protein and then antibodies to that protein. But what happens when messenger RNA enters your cells, and now is part of the other 200,000 copies of messenger RNA that are also in your cells making proteins and enzymes, is it'll make that protein for, for a, a couple of days. But the mRNA, in order to alter your DNA, would have to get into the nucleus, which means it would require a nuclear access signal, which it doesn't have. Also, it's mRNA not DNA. So it would have to be converted to DNA, which requires an enzyme called reverse transcriptase, which it also doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And then even if it was converted into DNA, which it can't be, it still has to be integrated into DNA, which requires an enzyme called integrase, which it also doesn't have. So the chances of it altering your DNA aren't small. There's zero. You have a better chance of becoming Spider-Man if you're getting these values (laughs) than altering your DNA.
2: I think maybe we should add virology as a required course <laughs> in high school going forward, since we're going to be dealing with these things for a while. Uh, but on a, on a very serious note, uh, Dr. Offit, as happy as we are about some of the progress with vaccines uh, here uh, in the United States and in the Northeast, where we're based, uh, the rest of the world certainly is lagging so far behind in vaccinations. Sub-Saharan Africa, I think people are saying not even 1% in many countries, and I think I heard in, in Haiti really for all the volunteer organizations we have and the health organizations, uh, nothing has been delivered yet. So good news that the Biden administration is getting 500 million doses to the global effort. Um, But what's the strategy for global vaccination? Uh, I don't recall anything like this Mm -hmm. ever in our lifetimes as we think about it. Uh, Is it COVID, COVAX, is it the volunteerism of countries? What's the strategy for really getting vaccines across the globe, particularly in countries that we know have to depend on other people to get it to them?
3: Right. I mean, the, the I think there's going to have to be, as you, as you know, sort of an international strategy to try and, and do as we can do it. I mean, there, there's no doubt that you can make enough vaccine. I mean, you take something like the mRNA vaccines. Remember, those are given at microgram doses. That's a millionth of a gram you can make kilograms of of mRNA, which is thousands of grams. That's a nine log difference. That's a billion fold difference. So you can make billions of doses of of mRNA vaccine. That's not the hard part. I think the hard part is going to be getting it into people's arms. and, And that's, expensive and, and difficult and there's often not an infrastructure at all um, for for that in the developing world. It took us a while in this country to, mm-hmm. to put in place yeah. an infrastructure for mass vaccinating adults. Yeah. it's going to take a lot of money and, and a tremendous uh, effort to do that, but it is, I mean, you know, we can argue that it, it's an altruistic thing for us to do to give vaccines to, to the developing world. It's really not. I, we need the world to be vaccinated. Remember, we every year in this in the United States children get a polio vaccine. Why? We haven't had polio in this country since the 1970s. The reason we give it is because polio still exists in the world, and therefore, because international travel is common, we're always at risk, so we need to get the world vaccinated. We are going to have to have a highly vaccinated population in the United States until we get control of this virus in the world, and that's going to be years, if not decades. We're speaking today with Dr. Paul Offit, a
1: member of the FDA's COVID Vaccine Advisory Committee and uh, director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I, you know, just uh, pulling the thread on we're going to have to get a lot of people or uh, the vast majority of people uh, vaccinated. Young uh, people are now eligible uh, 12 and up uh, for the vaccine, but only 15% of kids have uh, of that age group have gotten vaccinated. And... Uh, You know, just trying to understand uh, how important this is, and I'm sure parents worry about uh, their children getting vaccinated. When might we see that we move away from the EUA status to sort of a permanent uh, status? I'm I'm wondering uh, also about the the likelihood of a booster shot being required. You know, a booster shot, if it's going to be required a year out, and you said earlier, you thought, it had a, a longer shelf life uh, than, uh, than a year, but the logistics on that are gonna be complicated. We're gonna be in December when we're one year out where health, uh, health workers got vaccinated. That's usually a time where people think they get annually get, get an additional shot. So maybe on both of those young people in terms of, uh, of what, what's happening there, and then uh, maybe on the
3: EUA uh, and the booster as well. So so I think we need a vaccine for children. Uh, It's estimated that about 4 million children have been infected with this virus. About uh, 40,000 have been hospitalized. At least 300 have died this particular uh, inflammatory syndrome, multi-system inflammatory disease of children, it's pretty frightening. I mean, it's a it's a multi-system vasculitis. I mean, that's what, one of the heinous natures of this virus is it causes you to react to your own blood vessel. So we need a vaccine for children. Now, the, the numbers are all going down now. So I think people are thinking, you know, it's good. Now I think the benefits really are much less than they would have been. You know, I've been hearing things about, you know, side effects that are worrisome. So maybe I don't need a vaccine. I think that's false thinking. The, the um, You're going to see just how well we're doing once winter hits. And I, I think that when winter hits, you're going to see a, a spike again. And you're going to continue to see spikes in the winter until we get on top of this uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, in, ter- in terms of um, children not getting the vaccine they need, I, I think um, you know it's, it's understandable. We, we ask parents to inject or ask them to allow for injection of a biological into their child's arm, which they don't really understand very well. And right now, they're not seeing a lot of the disease so they're thinking, you know what? I'll just take a pass. But in terms of when you'll see the EUA being converted to a, a licensure, um, it, it, the, the FDA is looking for six months of follow-up. So that could really happen by the end of August. By um, you know, at least at least for those over over 18 years of age, and for the Pfizer product, really over uh, over 16 years of age.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Doctor Offit, I look back on these last six months, and, and you talked about how, yeah, we we learned to get the vaccine out there after our you know sort of trial and errors. Uh, in the beginning, but it's it's pretty impressive across the country uh, what happened in terms of mass vaccine clinics uh, and like anything else you put your full attention to. They got pretty smooth after a while, we were able to see lots of people, pretty satisfying. Now we're talking about dismantling all of them. And I, I have to ask from a public health perspective, is this a good idea? not just for COVID, but here's here's what I, th- I think we learned. We learned that when you make something that is necessary for the public health available at no cost to people, without having to produce an insurance card, without having to look at your coinsurance rate, without having to produce evidence that you're a citizen of the United States or you're here legally, you can actually get the job done. And, and my question to you would be, from a public health perspective, shouldn't we leave some of this infrastructure in place, and shouldn't this be the the new normal if we need to do a public health intervention across the country, rather than dismantling it all and having to relearn this all over again?
3: No, i think that's right and in, in, in many ways that that comes to boosters especially for adults i mean that's there really right. is an infrastructure for, for vaccinating children which is the pediatrician's office for adults not so much so adults don't 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 go to the doctor You can count me actually among that crowd but um so so how do you do that uh, you, you have to have it in the way we have it now pharmacies etc et and um, it's really going to come down to how, how whether we need booster doses and, and if so how frequently i do think that if you look at for example the um the cellular immune response after the second dose of mRNA vaccines. You have a fairly high frequency of cells like memory B cells, you know, which are the cells that make antibodies, or memory T helper cells, which are the cells that help B cells make antibodies. That usually predicts fairly longer lived immunity. If I had to make a guess on this, and I shouldn't since I see you recording this, but if I had to make a guess, I would say that um, we would probably need a booster every few years for this, assuming that a variant is not created that's completely resistant to immunity from natural infection immunization, in which case then you're really not talking about a booster, you're talking about a second vaccine. Mm -hmm. But you're right, I think we need an infrastructure input place for adults to vaccinate. We are going to be dealing with this virus for a while. I think we are certainly going to need boosters at some point. And so to dismantle it, we do that at our own peril.
1: Dr. Hoffa, you're uh, advising the FDA on the COVID vaccine, but they recently uh, got a lot of attention for another breaking health news story, the approval of the first Alzheimer drug in two decades. Uh, It turned out it's quite expensive. Uh, It's controversial. It produced a some lackluster results, but obviously uh, not enough to dissuade the FDA to, to move forward. Tell us about the process, uh, how it was orchestrated at the FDA, and what you expect to see from this green light uh, granted the company making the uh, product Biogen, and others who are uh, in the pipeline developing similar types of uh, medications.
3: So I'm on the vaccine side, not the drug side. So yeah. I can... I cut. Can com- I can comment comfortably on the vaccine side where you know these products are held to a very high standard because they're given to health, for the most part, to healthy children or healthy people. Um, the drug side is different. I, I don't, uh, so I, I know what you know from reading in the newspaper that that, that uh, approval was a surprise for the Alzheimer's drug. It certainly wasn't what the, the, um, the advisory ba- panel had recommended. I think three, three people on that panel actually just resigned because they disagree with that decision. But again, this is not my expertise.
2: Well, we appreciate your uh, clarity about that. Um, Maybe I can uh, just ask you uh, sort of the million dollar question. I guess this is your uh, area. Is there likely to be, we think there is perhaps, pandemics in our future, not COVID pandemics, but pandemics that we can't yet imagine? What should the preparation be? And I I am reminded of this because I was recently in an emergency preparedness meeting and looking at our plan. Uh, which was all written during anthrax, right? 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. and everything that we put in place. Again, <coughs> from your, your sort of broad uh, perspective, and we'll just say about the United States for now, recommendations for what we do to be prepared for the next pandemic. Mass vaccine clinics aside, we're seeing investments in public health and the like. You're in a teaching uh, organization. There's training issues. If you have a few thoughts to share with us, how to, as a country, how do we prepare for whatever is coming next? in the form of pandemics.
3: Well, I think it's safe to say there'll be another pandemic, and likely in our lifetime. And you you had a, you know, the SARS-1 raised its head in 2003. You had MERS in 2012. This is the third now pandemic raised its head in 2019. We live in close association with animals. I mean, a bat virus became essentially a human virus. A Influenza was a bird virus that became a human virus. HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, was a simian virus that Mm -hmm. became a human virus. So you can assume there's going to be mutations that allow these viruses to, again, enter the human population. Um, I think what we, if we'd haven't learned our lesson from this pandemic, we'll never learn the lesson. I mean, this pandemic brought the world economically to its knees. And I think what, at the very least, the first thing that has to happen is there has to be an, an international consortium with all countries participating, that the minute that a virus like this raises its head. That you, that you know about it. Uh, you know We shouldn't have had to have depended on a whistleblower in Wuhan to tell us that there was a virus that was circulating there that was killing people. I mean, I think the Chinese government is culpable in that regard. And, and so that's like step one. And then once you know that, you can have an international team of scientists that you know, quickly identify the virus, sequence the virus, come up with strategies for how to make a vaccine, do the research in place. And the research is not hard because there's a vast international research infrastructure. It's the mass production infrastructure that's not in place. The hardest part of making vaccines, as they say, is making vaccines. I mean, mass production isn't easy, mass administration isn't easy, and that's what we we need to learn, I think, from this, uh-huh. this uh,
1: pandemic. Did we see any silver linings in the pandemic in terms of the, the changes in the delivery system? Certainly the advent of telehealth uh, really uh, was a force multiplier in terms of spreading that and ho- hopefully getting access uh, to many more people. But anything else that, from your vantage point that you saw that uh, helped improve the overall delivery system?
3: Well, just from my vantage point, I think I think we've entered a new era of vaccinology. I mean, previously, um, you know, we gave the protein or an attenuated form of the virus or a killed form of the virus. Now we give the gene that codes for the virus, or in the case of the vectored virus, you give a, a replication defective virus which carries then the gene that, that you are that you interested in. Um, that's interesting to see what to what extent that will apply then to other uh, diseases for which we've had difficulty making a vaccine like HIV or mm-hmm. a universal flu vaccine or a malaria vaccine. So that's number one. Number two, and this is more of a personal thing. I think you know, normally when you do trials as was done for the mRNA vaccines, Um, They often aren't done in pregnant women, which is too bad because pregnant women obviously are more likely to be hospitalized and mechanically ventilated if they get SARS-CoV-2 infection than a woman of the same age who's not pregnant. So they benefit from this vaccine. What the CDC did initially was instead of doing what they always do, which is to say... This vaccine is contraindicated kind of for pregnant women because we don't have data. They said a pregnant woman could reasonably choose to get the vaccine, and then tens of thousands of women did do that. Yeah. And you had clear data now that, that, as compared to women who were pregnant that didn't get the mm-hmm. vaccine, there's no difference in maternal or fetal outcome. So, so that's that's good. And, and so I think that now you have a, a tremendous safety pro portfolio for this vaccine in pregnant women, for other vaccines that that will be in the future for pregnant women, like a respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, a group B strep vaccine, or a meningococcal. Vaccine. Vaccine. So I think that's that's one advantage here.
2: Well, that's great. And yeah. that's, that's actually positive news. We're okay. happy to share through the through the show. We've been speaking today with Dr. Paul Offit. He's a member of the FDA's COVID Vaccine Advisory Committee and director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Learn more about his important work by going to paul-offit.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit, thank you, as always, for your clear, concise voice on science, on vaccine science specifically, for your career-long contributions to this field, and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you.
1: Conversations on healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Laurie, what have you got for us this week?
4: Let's take a look at the COVID-19 variants and vaccination. So far, COVID-19 vaccines have been effective against variants of the coronavirus. Scientists are monitoring the situation carefully, with updated or new vaccines a possibility in the future if need be. The fact that variants of the original SARS-CoV-2 virus have emerged is not surprising. Viruses mutate randomly as they replicate and make errors as the genome is copied again and again. A variant is a distinct virus, typically with several mutations. Most mutations don't change the virus's biology or how the body's immune system responds. But sometimes mutations can result in a competitive advantage for the virus in its ability to replicate or transmit, for instance, or in how how effectively immunity from a previous infection or a vaccine is able to fight the virus. The good news is that so far, the authorized vaccines in the U.S. have been largely effective against the variants that have most concerned scientists. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is using three classifications for variants. There are five variants of concern, that's the CDC's middle level, for variants for which there is evidence of increased transmissibility, more severe disease, or reduced effectiveness of treatment or vaccines. There are no variants in the CDC's top classification level, a variant of high consequence. While the authorized COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, from Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, were designed to protect against the original SARS-CoV-2 virus, that's not the virus the vaccines ultimately have confronted. Still, they worked extremely well as shown in the clinical trials. And real-world studies have shown they continue to work well against those variants of concern. For instance, in Qatar, researchers used national databases on vaccinations, testing, and clinical characteristics to estimate the Pfizer vaccine effectiveness against any infection of the B117 variant at 89.5%. That's the variant that first emerged in the United Kingdom and is the most common variant in the US, according to the CDC. Effectiveness against any infection of the B1351 variant first identified in South Africa was 75 percent, but effectiveness against severe critical or fatal disease from any variant was an estimated 97.4 percent. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine's clinical trial data also give an indication of its effectiveness against variants of concern since it included study sites in South Africa and Brazil where such variants were identified. While the vaccine's efficacy in preventing moderate to severe disease was lower in those countries than in the United States in the trial, the effectiveness against severe or critical COVID-19 was more than 80% in all three locations. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
2: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Healthcare providers are forever on the lookout for that magic elixir that can cure a host of chronic ills in one step. And in the case of obesity, depression, anxiety, and stress, that elixir could be, turns out, a number of steps, as in taking a hike. A large study conducted by several institutions, including the University of Michigan and Edge Hill University in the U.K., looked at the medicinal benefits derived from regular group hikes conducted
5: in nature. This study had enough people in it and following them over time that we could see that these two different types of help for our mental well-being, they're operating independently. That means that if we go out in nature for a walk, we're getting an additional boost to our mental well-being.
2: Researchers evaluated some 2,000 participants in a program called Walking for Health in England, which sponsors some 3,000 walks per week across the country.
5: You know, this is a national study in the U.K. There was investment in these walking groups, in training leaders to take people on walks, finding trails that were good for people to do even if they had health problems.
2: Dr. Sarah Warber, professor of family medicine at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, said this study showed a dramatic improvement in the mental well-being of participants, especially those who had recently experienced something stressful, like the loss of a loved one or a serious
5: illness. Depression was reduced. Perceived stress was reduced and certainly relates to most of our lives and um, that people had, they experienced more positive uh, feelings or positive emotions. And there's been really lovely research that's shown that when we have positive emotions, we actually have better health in the long run. And we have less negative emotions when we're out in nature and when we're out in nature in a group. So we did have controls, and, and that's another thing that makes the study powerful, is that our control group were people who... At one time, intended to be part of walking groups, um, agreed to be followed, but they never took up the practice. And so we were able to match our walking group participants with people who were just basically just like them, but who didn't walk in groups. And so we could see how they differed over time. The
2: participants almost universally reported reduced stress and depression after participating in group nature hikes, and the effect was cumulative over time. Dr. Warber says it seems to be the combination of breathing in fresh air surrounded by nature during moderate exercise and the group dynamic adds a social benefit. Other studies have shown a link between mood and exercise, but Dr. Warber says this is the first study that revealed the added benefits of group hikes in nature and significant mitigation of depression.
5: Because we were really interested in whether if, if you are more stressed, would you get some better benefit uh, from being in nature? And in fact, that did pan out. So if you're going through stress, if you're having a hard time, uh, getting out in nature, getting out in nature with a group or with others has real benefit in reducing your stress.
2: Walk for Health, a simple guided group nature hike program, which incentivizes folks suffering from depression and anxiety to step into the fresh air with others, to talk out their thoughts while taking a hike, improving their mood, reducing their depression, increasing their overall health at the same time, Now that's a bright idea.
1: You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Plinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.